theyeshiva.net. Very, very honored to be here. Very much looking forward to talking about such a, an important topic, um, to particularly to this group who's in that that um, you know part part of their uh, um, you know a life cycle, being at the beginning towards the beginning of a marriage. Um, I'm going to start by talking about um, actually in, in in keeping with the idea of um, of Amalek. Um, you know, there's uh, we know that um, Amalek in Gematria is suffix or doubt, and um, in Kabbalistic thought, it's represented by zvuv, by a fly that flies around in an uneven, um, you know, random kind of pattern. And uh, just by way of starting, one of the keys to success in a marriage, especially in the earlier years is to be able to go from suffake and a place of uncertainty to a place of really knowing um, what are your goals, thinking about what, what matters, um, what is it that you're going to focus uh, on. Um, Ryoshbar Salvechik used to talk about how one of the ways to think about marriage, especially in the early years, is to be ready to answer the three questions that Yaakov prepared his um, army for the fateful encounter with his brother Esav. And the three questions are, who are you? Where are you going? What are you going to do with what you have? Having that basic foundation of doing that cheshbon hanefesh, of knowing who you are, Knowing, knowing what direction you're going in, um, and and knowing, um, you know, what are your unique strengths, what are your signature strengths, and how do you work together to bring out the best in each other, and um, you know that it's very, very fitting for you know as we enter into a Purim uh, next week, and as we enter into um, into this uh, very special Shabbos to be able to uh, talk about this. Um, here's, here's just a couple of thoughts on this, um, to, um, have a, a, um, discussion as a couple with each other, where you take a step back every once in a while, uh, maybe as much as a couple of times a week. And some people do it even every day, take a step back. And, um, you, you take stock in, in terms of how are you going? What, what are your goals? You know, it says in Mishle, without that vision thing, you, you lose yourself. You know, if I asked everybody here to spend 20 minutes today, tomorrow before Shabbos, Motzei Shabbos, and, and then going into Sunday, four days, 20 minutes writing about um, what, what are your goals, imagining the best possible outcome in your life. If everything went as planned and you did it four days in a row, getting in touch with your aspirations, do you know that um, there two things would happen? Number one, it'll make it more likely that you will um, that you will um, realize those goals in the course of your marriage. And number two, which I find fascinating, is your happiness levels will go up. Your levels of simcha 
which is really what we have to talk about, uh, you know, what, what's involved in something of marriage, talking about that in, 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 in this, uh, this part of the year in Adar is, um, is tied to getting in touch with our goals. Listen to this. Um, newlyweds whose account of their courtship had, had strong, positive, romantic themes, okay, meaning that they were really into an excited kind of whining and dining each other, and really a lot of romance, you know, and intensity at the beginning of their marriage, which is wonderful. But when that becomes the number one component of a marriage, the research finds they became less happy early in marriage compared with couples whose accounts were equally positive, but lacked the romantic um, elements. Um, What this is really saying is um, we all know um, a key to success in marriage is the ability to take a step back and the ability to have realistic expectations about what really matters. You know, there's um, the myth um, that's uh, very much um, present in many parts of uh, the United States, which is uh, kind of the myth of the soulmate. And we believe, of course, we believe in somebody who's your basher, and we believe in deep connection. But we, we don't believe that this is something that um, involves, um, you know, something that doesn't take a lot of work. You know, uh, it's often quoted, the Revarie Levin in Yerushalayim um, once came with his um, wife and went to the doctor and he said, our foot is hurting. Now, you know, that's an amazing thing to say that because his wife's foot was hurting, it was like they were one, one being. Our foot was, but what people often forget is it takes a long time to develop that level of connection. You know, so um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about a fascinating uh, book written by a man named Dr. Pilmer. And what Dr. Pilmer did is he interviewed, he's a a gerontology expert, sociologist at Cornell University. And he did something fascinating. He interviewed, um, I think, over a thousand people who had been married for a very long period of time, some successfully, some had been through divorces, but basically it was a thousand people asking them, what are the lessons that you want younger people to know about what matters and doesn't matter and working on making a good marriage even better? So here's the the, uh, common um, agreement of everybody who we interviewed. Number one is you want somebody who's going to bring out the best in you. In a good marriage, um, your partner is going to, you're going to be better with your partner. It's true at times you're going to lose your temper. It's true at times there's going to be all kinds of challenges. It's not so easy to uh, take, um, you know, uh, people who are basically different, males and females are different in many, many different ways. But in a good marriage, you expect the best of each other and you bring out the best. That's what Dr. Palmer's um, um, research subject shows. Friendship over romance. And this is something that I think is so consistent with the Jewish and Hasidic view of marriage. Okay, you need to enjoy being uh, being together. 
And a very powerful predictor is whether you think the other likes you. I'll just tell you a quick story from my own um, from my own marriage. I've been less blessed, Baruch Hashem, Amhara, with an amazing marriage for the last uh, 44 years. And my brother-in-law was, um, was um, our uh, shachan. And he, um, he uh, you know, set us up. You know, we knew each other from yeshiva high school days and then past yeshiva high school. And he, um, things were fine, but we weren't, there, were, there, there weren't such sparks going on. I liked her, she liked me, but, you know, it was, uh, we were a little boring together. So um, he calls me up one day and he says, you know, Lonnie really likes you. She says that when she grew, when she, when you were going out before, she was in the middle of, um, you know, I don't know, she was in law school or something. She was in the middle of very, um, very intense kind of academic demands. And now, now that there's not so much pressure, she realizes that she's really into you. She likes you. He then um, calls um, my wife. Then, then not even fiance and says the same thing. David really likes you. It's just that he's, you know, he's writing his doctoral dissertation, whatever it was. And then we get engaged and they have us over for dinner the night of our engagement. And he starts laughing and he says, I am such a liar. Okay. I made it all up, but I got news for you. When I believed that she really was into me. Okay. And she believed I was really into her. It was the beginning of an amazing, amazing marriage that I thank Akadosh Baruch Hu for every day of my life. So there's something to that. You know, what do you bounce back to each other? You know, our, our hearts bounce off each other. Another piece of advice from Dr. Pilmer is don't keep score. This, I think, is so important. I see so many people who say, look, I've done this for him, but he doesn't do such and such for me in return. And the reality is you can't keep score. In a marriage, you have to give it, as Pilmer's people said, you have to give every relationship 100-100. Not 50-50, 100-100. You have to give 100% of your effort towards trying to be there for your spouse and vice versa. It may not feel fair at times, but then you'll get that bounce back response. And the final point here is um, a point about um, turning towards. One of the Gedole Hadora marriage is Dr. John Mordechai Gottman, a graduate of um, Chabad, um, Chabad um, Lubavitch Yeshiva until his uh, parents uh, moved away or whatever. But, but Dr. John Mordechai Gottman Whereas the big Yamakon has said is, an, is the most respected expert. He's done over 400 studies um, um, on what, what leads to a good marriage, what's problematic, and how to fix it. Um, you do a survey of um, any expert in marriage in, in the world, and they say, who's number one? Everybody immediately says uh, Dr. Gottman, um, who's amazing. As a matter of fact, we... Um, invited our Smicha students and graduates at YU to come to um, a, a training, a two-day training with Dr. Gaman. He says, yeah, but you have to close out the training. I don't want any more than 250 people there. And this without exaggeration. After, after our phone lines being open for 10 minutes, within 10 minutes, 
we were already oversubscribed. We went way over. We had to figure out other ways of having breakout rooms and having um, closed circuit, etc. But let me tell you what he says about turning tours because it's a it's an important concept that you could um, you could use in your in your marriage in a general kind of way. Here's what he said. He has people come to his laboratory in the University of Washington campus in Seattle, Seattle. And he has them uh, come. And um, when, when he comes, hold on a second. Yes, Rabbi? Can I ask you just to move a little bit? We want to see your face a little more clear as you adjust to the side, more center. You got it. You got it. Okay. There's a... Uh, Thank you for the practical advice. Thank you. How's that? Is that me? Much better. Ah, excellent. Okay, good. Talking about my and you couldn't even see me, right? Okay. Okay, great. Thanks, thanks, thanks for letting me know. Anyway, um, so um, so here's here's what he does. He has them set up in the lab, um, and it's the lab is it's fascinating what he does. He has. Couples come and spend a week in apartments on the University of Washington campus. And there are one-way mirrors watching the couples. He has his research assistants watch the couples in all the public areas of the apartment. And then he and his his, uh, um, uh, research uh, people um, meet with the couple and say, you see where this happened, you see where that happened. And what's fascinating is something he calls turning towards. Um, Cause it's, it's amazing thing to see. So you have, for example, a, a, a young couple and they're there for the week working on their marriage. And she um, is, um, um, does what he calls a bid for attention. She turns to him for a meaningful conversation. She's looking out on the beautiful lake on the campus and she says, um, honey, listen, um, isn't it incredible that we get to be spending a whole week here just working on a relationship? It's amazing. We're so lucky. How many people get to do this? At this point, he has an akuda sabachira. He has a point of choice. He could either stop reading the New York Times article that he's reading put it down, say to himself, there's nothing more important in life now than for me to turn to my wife and engage her in this meaningful conversation to bring us closer. Or he could do what he did, which is to take his cup of coffee, say, "Uh uh-huh, and go back to the newspaper article. It's the ability to stop that. It's the ability to recognize that the Makuta Sabahira, as Viktor Frankl, you know, a real friend of, uh, of, of, of uh, you know, inspired by, by the Lubavitcherevi. Um, as Viktor Frankl said, he said the following. He says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our choice. In that space lies our growth. Okay. She says, aren't we lucky to be here? What he needs to do is to put down the newspaper, put down the coffee, and say there's nothing more important now than this. And in fact, I mentioned this once to Rabbi Crone, who told me um, a fascinating insight. He says, where's, where's the first time in the Torah that we see the concept of turning towards? 
It says, V'yalkayin v'yalmincha so lo mo'od, triggering the first murder, right? So turning towards, he says, is we constantly have choices in life to either look the other way or to turn towards. He says the word for turning towards is shah. And then he says, but even think about it. With one turning towards, with one going to show on a night that you might be exhausted, or, you know, it's Purim and you, you think, hey, maybe I should invite this person who in the, in the words of the Rambam is a Mori Lev and a Mlole Nefesh, somebody who's having a hard time. And to turn towards and go past our selfish needs and be there is something that if we could discipline ourselves to do that in our marriage, it makes an enormous difference. Let's get to talking a little bit about handling conflict in a marriage. Very important component. I'll say three words said in the Sefer Hasidim over a thousand years ago that I'm sure describes the way you feel after a fight with your spouse. Here's the three words. After argument, there is regret. Okay? And that's such an important piece of knowledge to the extent that we could, um, you know, it it doesn't mean that you don't go to bed um, angry. It doesn't mean that. It means that you need a pullback response when you're about to lose it with with your spouse and you need to maybe take a couple of breaths, maybe you need to walk away and, and to just buy some time. But eventually you need to talk it, talk it out. It's not necessarily such good advice to say never go to sleep angry with your spouse. It is good advice to say, take a normal breath in, slow breath out. And, um, you know, the part of the brain that's involved in, um, in controlling anger is in the frontal prefrontal cortex where men put on their tefillin every weekday morning. That's exactly where that lives. The primitive part of the brain where anger and rage and katata lives is right behind the nose in the amygdala. Ah, okay. Erechapayim is the split second that it takes to go to take a step back, to take a couple of breaths, and to go from af to shalrosh, from the primitive giving in to the, to, to, to the anger, as the Balatanya, as you know, says, why is the kilo ovid abodazar? Because you're becoming like an animal. That's what separates us from animals, is, uh, you know, when we try to control our anger. You need to go with that erech to go up to the shelrosh. You know, my father, Zal, used to always say, he was a rav uh, for, uh, you know, um, for 65 years in the White Shoal in Farakway, but before that in, um, in, in, um, in, in um, Connecticut and Ohio. Um, and um, he, um, he, he used to always say to me, couples don't have to think alike. They have to think together. They don't have to think alike. They have to think together. And, uh, you know, that's something that you could only do from a place of calmness and really focusing on listening to the, uh, you know, listening to the person. Um, let me talk to you about what might be the most important point that I'd like to share with you in my hour with you before we go to uh, Q&A. 
is um, is um, a story that goes um, that I heard from a colleague, um, Rabbi Doctor um, Johnny Krug, um, amazing man, and a psychologist and a rav and a lot of other talents. But he tells the following story that really I think helps you understand the importance of managing expectations in a marital relationship. He talks about this. He says, imagine a person who gets onto an elevator at the height of rush hour on a, um, at five to nine, this is in the Empire State Building, it's five to nine, the height of rush hour in midtown Manhattan. And um, there's, um, the elevator is very crowded. And there's some guy right behind you who is um, kind of like trying to jockey for space, you know, so he could get out the second you hit his floor. Let's say his floor is the 65th floor. And the person's like jamming into you, jamming into you. And you're ready with your dirtiest look the second he goes out of the elevator. You're ready to give it to me. You know how the car cuts you off on Eastern Parkway and it somehow makes you feel better to give them a dirty look. Okay or to uh, just, you know, uh, look at them and make eye contact with them or whatever. So he comes to the 65th floor and you look back to give him your dirty look and you see that he's blind. And his pushing into you was his cane that he needed to steady himself so that he didn't get, um, lose his balance. What does that knowledge do to your emotional reaction? What that knowledge does to your emotional reaction to his crowding you is your righteous indignation turns maybe into a little bit of healthy guilt, healthy busha, a healthy pullback response, okay? Um, and it also might help you um, uh, go to a point that you just want to help him off the elevator. It totally changes your whole approach. That's the importance of understanding how to manage expectations in a marriage, okay? To the extent that we can always take a step back and say, hey, you know, maybe she's in a bad mood because she had a very tough day. Maybe he's in a bad mood because he's been under a lot of stress today. I know that he's been having a very hard time with his supervisor at work, or I know that um, he has an incredibly tough workload. And we have Parnassa problems, any of those kind of things to manage your expectations, to understand um, what I need to do here is support. I don't need to go back with anger. And in fact, um, I want to share with you um, uh, an important, uh, important concept, um, which is based on, first of all, Chazal. On marriage is the people growing machine. There's a Gemara in Yuvamos, a mission in Yuvamos, Perak that says that the Hebrew word this, uh, for Nesuin is has embedded in it two realities, that the inevitable difference between men and women can be a masa, a burden that weighs us down. That's embedded in the word Nesuin. Or the same word masa, what else does it mean? It means a song. It means a navua. It means a nigan. It means something transcendent. And it's up to us how to handle those conflicts. Next point that I wanted to uh, talk about is the um, idea 
of marriage as a people growing machine. Okay. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Here's marriage as a people growing machine. It goes like this. Very often in marriage, the marriage pushes us to work on exactly the areas we need to work on. I can only illustrate this so that it makes sense by telling you a story. Um, When I first got married, um, I came from a family where there were tremendous expectations that that we be exactly on time. So um, my father's all would always be exactly on time in terms of anything he had to do. He wasn't early. He wasn't late. He was exactly on time. He got much more relaxed as he got older. <clears throat> but when he was younger, that was that was his thing. He's a wonderful guy, a warm guy. But he had a mishigas about time. So I grew up feeling that everybody must be that way. My wife came from an amazing family. Bali Chesed, Rosh Yeshiva, Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva used to call him every Arab Yom Kippur to get a bracha from him. Because um, from my in-laws, because they were so unbelievable in terms of the level of chesed and achnasas archim, I never even knew that I had to give lectures to my pastoral psychology classes on conflict with in-laws because they never said a critical word to me. I didn't even know it was a thing. So, but when it came to time, time was a general approach for them. If something was called for seven in the morning, they may show up seven o'clock at night. They just had the exact opposite approach to time that I had. Get married, and it's time for the first class of our marriage. Okay. I figured out, this was before GPS, I figured out it'll take me exactly 33 minutes to get from our house to the smorgasbord of the chasana. <coughs> So I go into the car and I call up to my wife. Okay, honey, um, I'll be waiting in the car. And she wasn't even thinking about what dress she was going to wear. What happened over the last 44 years is exactly what needed to happen. I needed to learn that it's not a big deal if I come late to every chasana. It's better for me if I come late and if I miss the least healthy part of chasana. And she needed to learn to be more prompt. today. This just happened earlier this week. If you were a fly on the wall in our house at a point that she was, um, um, you know, that, that, that we had, um, actually, it just happened. We had to go to um, a speaking engagement I had, and she was with me in San Diego for the speaking engagement. She's on average ready, um, you know, five to, to 20 minutes before I leave. I have to, she now has to wait for me. I have to, we, we change in exactly the areas we needed to change. Marriages do that, where the masa can become a song and it doesn't have to be a burden. So I think that's another uh, very important point I wanted to make. Okay, what, what, um, what do we need to know um, in terms of, um, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to switch. Um, it's a lot of good stuff here, but I don't want to, you know what? I, I just want to share with you um, just something what happens, how things shift over time. 
I have a cartoon and I'm happy to share with you the um, PowerPoints here. Um, it says now and what he'll be later. Okay. So somebody who you see now is handsome. Later, after years of marriage, handsome turns to vain. Strong, which may have been what attracted you at the beginning of a marriage, turns to controlling. Sweet turns to mushy. Generous turns to wasteful. Brilliant becomes boring, charming, annoying. Brave, reckless, loving, suffocating. Neat turns obsessive. And the guy you fell in love with because he's unique is now viewed as weird. Now, that's not a death knell to a marriage. If we expect it and we understand this is what happens in marriage. And this is our life's work. Remember the brilliant Vilna Gaul in his, um, you know, in his, um, um, you know, brilliant uh, thinking on um, his, uh, his writings on Shira Samidos. Here's what he says. Okay. I think the Pesach is, Here's what he says. The very purpose of life is It's to control the mida and the struggle that we have the toughest time with. So if our toughest time is with anger, he says, when we're working on our anger, we're fulfilling our tafkid in life. Okay? And he goes on to give examples of that. because He says, otherwise, what's the purpose of even living if we're not struggling to grow in the areas that are most difficult for them? That's what marriage does for us. The power of living together as a couple is, um, is, uh, is basically um, largely from that. It forces us to work. And if you have a good marriage, you get better and better at a time and you grow over time and you grow and hopefully you grow without being too defensive. Here's, um, here's an important slide that I have. It's called The Myth of an Instant Soulmate. It's interesting. I just came back from California where you have a very high, high percentage of people who believe in an instant soulmate, but you see it, I'm sure, in, um, in Brooklyn as well. Okay, so um, here's, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a large scale study done at Rutgers University, 94% of respondents place desire for their spouse to be their soulmate at the top of their mattering map. But in fact, relationships require work, getting to know the person, right? Giving to the person, the whole ahava building up through have, through giving to each other, and the mutual giving and the mutual sharing and, and really being vulnerable to each other. That's what builds up a relationship, okay? It's through mutual giving, knowledge, and intimacy, that's how you build up a soulmate, okay? Um, love at first sight, which I'm shocked at how many people really don't even understand that. The love at first sight is could be fine, but it's basically, it's only based on one sense, on the visual sense, in contrast to love as ahava and the hava giving, Okay. Um, so, uh, I just wanted to uh, make that a uh, very important point. Okay. Um, let me, um, just move towards, um, 
this um, marriage stuff. Just a slightly different uh, slide. Okay. And what we have here is, um, okay, I just wanted to go to this. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the impact of technology and the importance of paying attention. The greatest enemy of a marriage is this. It's this. Um, I can't tell you how many people, how many kids complain to me about their parents always being online and vice versa, how many, um, how many um, uh, marriages um, are really stressed out because of one member of the couple or another being on this. I'll just share with you a couple of thoughts. The first one is the beautiful thought of um, the um, Piesesner quoting the Balshemtov. What the Piesesner said, quoting the Balshemtov, is that when we say a number of times every day the words Vyavadatem Mehera, Alpidrush, one of the ways of understanding Vyavadatem Mehera is get rid of the rush in your life. Relationships are built up by carving out a time of the day where you shut this thing off, put it in your pocket, and you could check it later on, you know? Um, and I can't emphasize that enough. You know, um, um, there were two programs that were amazing. One in uh, Chicago, one in Cleveland, where the Rabbanim who were behind the um, internet of SIFA um, a few years back in Shea Stadium, realized that it was a big mistake, realized that it didn't work because people need, you know, digital technology to live, you know, to do their job. But they did it very intelligently. They, they um, set up, this is um, Revelia Brudny, you know, the Rosh Hashiva of Mir and Rev Waxman, who you know. Um, and uh, they brought me along as the comic relief. And they flew us in to spend, first it was in Chicago, they set up just for the day a massive um, a tent, temporary building for 3,000 people. It was packed beyond capacity of 3,000 um, by the time we got there. And we got there a little bit early. And um, they, they, what they did is they decided make small changes. Tafasta marubalo tafasta. Make small changes in what you're doing in terms of technology. One was... Anytime you speak to somebody, okay, like you're walking down, you speak to somebody, they say, just take your phone, put it in your pocket, ideally shut it off and put it in your pocket until after the conversation. Very doable and and very, um, very practical. And then small things. They said in dinner at night, we don't expect you to not have your phone at all during dinner. That's asking too much. But what we'd like you to do is um, set aside um 20 minutes at dinner where you don't look at your phone and your phone is off. And then other things like that, how to handle your phone during davening, how to handle your phone, um, how you only charge it. You don't take it to bed with you. You only charge it in the public room at night. What was amazing about this experience, those simple recommendations, the totally transformed both communities. Cleveland did the same thing with even stronger results. But the amazing thing that happened was those simple little changes led to a, um, such a shift in the atmosphere of the community 
that the children of the community um, started asking for more. They said, we want more restrictions on our internet use. They loved the fact that they had their parents' attention, maybe for the first time since they could remember. Um, and I can't emphasize enough how, how crucial it is in building up a marriage to find some time where this is put away. And the other quote is the beautiful quote, um, you know, um, I think it was from uh, Rabbeinu Bachya, again, a thousand years ago. Hashem Yatsileni mi Pizur Hanefesh. He says, Bashem Chasad Echad. He says, It's Fila for our time. Okay. Hashem saved me from Pizur Hanefesh, from the fragmentation of my Neshama that comes with multitasking. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, just something to think about in terms of um, making a marriage even a uh, strong marriage even stronger. Um, remember that mirror neurons, relationships are built up face to face. Fascinating study. They take a group of um, kids and um, they do something upsetting to them. Fourth grade kids. So something mildly upsetting to these fourth grade girls. And they have half of them text their mothers for comfort. The other half call their mothers for comfort on their cell phone. And they ray, they measure the um, physiologic harlots of stress in these girls. Turns out that calling their mother for comfort, I'm sorry, texting their mother for comfort did nothing. Their cortisol levels remained elevated, their blood pressure, their pulse rate, etc. Okay, calling their mother, the warm, soothing voice of their mother, um, their blood pressure went down, their pulse rate went down, cortisol levels went down, every measure of, of, of physiologic measure of stress. Bottom line here is that um, I, I can't um, emphasize enough how if you want to make a strong marriage stronger, um, if you want to build on your relationship, figure out how to have, it, 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 it could be just feeding that turning towards um, a need by, by um, you know, even if it's going out one night a week uh, to, for a cup of coffee, if that's not very practical, I know how busy a life, you know, everybody is living, um, you, uh, you find a time that you ritualize. The key to making change is ritualize it. You make it into a habit. So, um, you know, you tell your, um, you, you, you work out, look, Every, I was just in Eretz Yisrael with my brother, one of my father's yard site, uh, you know, last week. And um, he was telling me that with um, my sister-in-law, he, um, they started a habit of, um, during lunch, his office is, uh, is close enough that they run over to each other from their respective jobs. And they go for a, um, a half hour talk, uh, I'm sorry, half hour walk. And he says, it's been so amazing for their marriage to be able to connect that way on a regular basis. Um, another thing is the power of Hakar Satov, the power of gratitude. And to have gratitude to remind yourself of the positives of your, of your spouse. Um, research shows when you nurture a fondness and admiration for each other by reminding yourself, I can't believe what my wife did for me. I can't believe what my husband did for me. And when you do that, in a, in a regular way, 
it serves as a buffer against stress. And, um, you know, I just, um, you know, um, uh, wanted to spend a, a minute talking about. Okay, let's move on here. Um, oh, here. You know what? I'm going to share. If I share this screen, let me see. Oh, okay, that's okay. No, no problem. It's 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 a it's a um, you'll get the uh, you'll get the um, uh, PowerPoint. It shows what Pizer Hanefish works like looks like in a brain. On the left hand side of this fMRI is a brain that's on the opposite of Pizer Hanefish, and it's only a small part of the brain is lit up because it's deep. When you're only doing one thing, you think in a deeper way. This is the way your brain looks like if you're lost in, in, in a safer that you love what the safer has, or when you're singing a niggin that really gets to you. And then on the right, you see literally the same brain on Pizar Hanefesh, a brain that's multitasking. And Enodoma Shmiluria seeing this is something that'll, you know, that is actually pretty powerful when I send you that PowerPoint. Pizar Hanefesh is um, an emotional state characterized by fragmentation, confusion, insecurity. And um, that's the uh, that's the whole idea uh, there. Um, okay, I think that uh, the, the, the I, I have I, I could keep you here all night. Um, but I wanted to um, just um, spend a little bit of time. Um, talking a little bit more how research shows the couple's ability to put a positive spin on their marriage's history is a very positive um, uh, prognostically for a marriage. Reminding yourself of your spouse's positive qualities, as I said before, even in the face of anger at flaws is crucial. Deliberately thinking and talking about what you admire in your spouse can reawaken admiration it just makes a tremendous amount of difference to focus on the positive, even if you're angry at each other. Okay. Um, and in one study, conjuring up positive thoughts about your your spouse has been shown to be an effective antidote to um, infidelity. Okay. Um, let me um, know we have 10 minutes here. Um, Here's some more principles for effective marriage. Reunite at the end of the day. Talk about how your day went. Dealing with stress with that turning towards. Need to validate and avoid immediate lapse into a problem-solving mode. And, um, you know, show nonverbal signs of listening. All of that is extremely, um, extremely helpful. Okay. Um, so, um, let's just, um, move on to, um, here's, um, some, some, um, a couple of thoughts about Dr. Gottman's work, which I think is, uh, is important. What Dr. Gottman's work is couples in effective marriages do fight, but they have a built-in barometer to avoid the fights ever getting out of hand. They have fight stopping mechanisms. Sometimes they'll show up. I know when I see a couple who comes to me because they feel their marriage is in trouble and they still joke around with each other or they tease each other. Okay. That makes that, that to me is a very positive sign. You know, they say what that art is making something out of nothing. Humor is making nothing out of something. Okay. 
Um, the Another very important point is to go from blame to contribution. In any issue of fights and disagreements, you want to not necessarily have to see you're wrong, I'm right, I'm right, you're wrong. You want to talk about relative contribution. Everybody has a relative contribution to whatever to whatever is going on. Um, okay, let me um, let me just share with you pathways to acceptance, and then I'm going to end with a story so we can get to uh, to uh, discussion. Okay, so here acceptance through understanding is based on the idea of to name the monster as half the bottle battle. To see your spouse's differences as differences rather than defects, as a vulnerability rather than a violation. He may have a psychological allergy to closeness because his mother or father smothered him. And to see the big picture rather than the little behavior. Let me, um, let, let me um, end with the story, okay? And then we'll go to discussion. Um, the story goes like this. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. Five stories running through my head, but I'll take this one because it's uh, it's uh, I think I think um, you know a, pos- a po- very positive way to end, even though it may sound like a depressing story. A um, number of years ago, I was invited to a homeless conference, um, and I was very excited. It was in Midtown Manhattan, and I thought, like, wow, I get to hang out with a bunch of homeless people. Uh, it turns out that's not what it was. It was in um, the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom back then. 400 very well-dressed um, professionals who specialized in, in homelessness. And there were two speakers. I was one of the speakers. And the other speaker, who I imagine was a real keynote speaker, was a guy who was incredibly daunting in terms of being a very impressive man. His uh, bio says, uh, Dr. So-and-so is in charge of homeless policy for the United States government. He won an Oscar for a documentary he made on homelessness, um, you know, last year. Um, It says he has a bachelor's from, he he went to the Dalton School, has a bachelor's from Harvard, um, PhD from Harvard, and goes on and on and on from there. So I'm thinking, um, like, wow, this is, uh, this is a very impressive, and he was a very, handsome man wearing an incredibly, um, you know, incredibly um, rich looking $10,000 suit. I don't notice that stuff, but with him, I even noticed it. So um, he spoke before me and uh, he gets up and the first words out of his mouth were so shocking. You almost saw 400 people fall out of their seats. And here's what he said. He said, um, let me tell you about my history. You expect to hear history of a very privileged guy. He said, here's, here's my history. He said, when I was 11 years old, in front of me, my father, in a coked up rage, shot my mother and then turned the gun on himself and killed himself. He said, could you imagine? And this is not what you're expecting to hear from this guy. He said, I was a street smart kid. I looked older than my age and I was an only child and I knew I was going to fall into the foster care system. And in my neighborhood, it was a system that is horrible. So I run away. 
And I spent the next two years in a state of yish and trauma going from homeless shelter to homeless shelter and then leaving as soon as I possibly, as soon as I possibly can, because I was worried that they'd be on to me. So um, I I kept uh, leaving and um, I, um, I, uh, you know, because um, I I don't want to be caught. And he says it was a horrible life. I was um, plagued by symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and nightmares and loneliness. I had nobody to talk to. He said, until after two years of wandering around the country, I come to a homeless shelter in Manhattan. And I go over to the um, director of the homeless shelter. And, um, you know, he sees me. And he says four words that explain exactly why I'm here today. Here are the four words. Okay. By the way, 400 pens come out. Everybody wants to know, what are the four words? He says, put your pens away. It's not the words. It's how they were spoken. Four words were, how are you doing? He put his arm around me. He said, how are you doing? And I saw from the look in his eyes and from just his whole demeanor, he really wanted to know. So for the first time since the murder-suicide of my parents, I started to talk to somebody and I, I told him everything. And I saw that I had to talk about it. So it was like a physical need. And the more I talked, the more unburdened I felt and the better I felt. And after a while of doing this, you know, for a couple of months, he sees I'm a pretty smart guy. And he gets me a full scholarship to the Dalton School. From there, I get a full scholarship to Harvard undergraduate and to Harvard for my doctorate. And everything else follows from that. All from somebody who shows a sense of caring and connection. That's the essence of what a marriage is about. It's a message of, on a regular basis, turning towards each other. Remember, Shaw, that Shaw. Okay, that turning towards and checking in, looking into each other's eyes, bouncing off our hearts, a true concern and interest, even though at times we may want to kill each other and what the other person is thinking. And we, may we all be Zoha as I get closer to the nine o'clock uh, slot of go opening up a, a discussion. We will be Zoha to have an Adar um, and a Purim marked by the opposite of Amalek, marked by connection, marked by the opposite of randomness, marked by goal setting, and perhaps most importantly, um, marked by connection. You know, you take somebody, team of researchers find this, you take somebody, take a person, put him or her at the bottom of the hill, and you say, estimate the steepness of this hill. If you're alone, you see the hill is very steep. If you have somebody at your side, the hill looks less steep. The closer you feel towards the person on your side, the less steep the hill looks and less tired you get walking up the hill. And that's the three F's of Simcha, family, friends, and faith. You have that all in your community. You have that all in your marriage. And we just have to use some of these thoughts to nurture it. 
Thank you, everybody. And um, that does it. We're, we're open for discussion. Yashakoyach, Yashakoyach. Can you see the chat box, the question and answers on the bottom? Um, let me open the chat box. Q&A, Q&A, got it. Only eight. Hey, what a disappointment. Okay, we'll do it. Let's go. Q&A. Okay. Um, yeah, so excellent question number one um, is, um, wait, this says answer live or type answer. I just, I talk out the answer, right? Rabbi? Yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah. you answer. Yeah. So what does it mean the one spouse brings out the best of you? It's um, if you believe in your spouse, okay? Um, if you just really believe in each other, um, then um, it, it means, um, you know, um, my wife often will, will give me, she gives me honest feedback, but I know that it's coming from a place of deep belief in my skills and my abilities. You know, she bounces off belief in me. I'll give you an example of um, the last day of my father's life. He had an amazing life. He's age 96. And um, the whole extended family is surrounding him. Um, you know, a huge number of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren were all singing to him his favorite Smiros, and he's telling us how he wants us to live our life. It was an unbelievable experience. And um, he turns to one of my kids who um, marched to the beat of his own drum. He's a wonderful guy, but always marched to the beat of his own drum. And he holds on to him. This is like in the last few minutes of his life. And he says, um, Yossi, just be Yossi. Those are his last words to my son. Yossi, just be Yossi. And it made such a difference. That belief in him brought out the best in him. And as Rabbeinu Sadok of Lublin says, as we, we all know, in Sitko Sitzadik, just like we have to teach our children to believe in God. So too do we need to teach our children to believe in themselves. That Hashem cares about us. We're not an insignificant being here one day and gone the next. And then Rabbi Sadok says, when we teach our kids in the very first field of the same Moda'ani, and to say Rabbi Emunosecha, what does Rabbi Emunosecha mean? Much is your faith in us, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's the way we bring out the best, the best in others. That's the way we communicate belief in others. And that's how we bring out the best in people. Um, I hope that answers it. Uh, next question, question. Can you summarize the points you spoke about? Um, can I summarize all the points I spoke about? Um, Rabbi Blooming, okay, or Rebison Blooming, help me understand what that what that question means um, after an hour-long talk. <laughs> well, there's a PowerPoint, right, that you're going to send around? Yeah, yeah, it's all there. But if I, if I could summarize it all, um, in, um, in, um, unless this is somebody who just wasn't there for the talk. Um, but, but um, uh, you know, I, um, I'll just, uh, 
I'll just share with you um, uh, the PowerPoint. And the PowerPoint has the summary of every single point we talked about. What am, what am I missing, Yankee? I'm sure I'm missing something uh, by by that question. Unless, um, can somebody help me understand it? Feel free to move forward for the next question. We should move forward? Yeah. Okay. Um, when do I know if we as a couple need marriage counseling? Yeah, I'm glad I know I'm supposed to talk about that. How do you know when it's just normal stress or you need marriage counseling? Yeah, a very important question. I'm so glad you reminded me to talk. I was asked to talk about that. Um, in general, something, um, um, it's, if a marriage has, a healthy marriage should have about a five to one ratio of five positives for every negative. Sure, you're going to have fights. It's totally normal. But the ratio should be, you know, five positives, more or less for every negative. It should be dominated by the positive. If the negativity includes um, a lot of um, emotionalism, or it includes um, yelling, screaming, criticizing, or it includes stonewalling, not hearing each other, and it's dominated by criticism and anger, that for sure is a time to at least go and get a consult from a marital therapy um, uh, specialist. The three questions one often asks in terms of even getting therapy for any mental health issue, like depression or anxiety, is it becomes something that probably needs professional help if it's um, pervasive, persistent, and interfering with functioning pervasive, persistent, and interfering with functioning. If you have those three, then um, then I think it does make, um, you know, for sure, um, you, sh- you should go for at least a consult. Um, but again, you know, the, the best recommendation I can make to answer that question is read Dr. Gottman's book, you know, the, you know, the all-time most highly recommended book on marriage, well, the seven principles of an effective marriage and, um, you know, with pride in the fact that he's a, a product of uh, Lubavitch Yeshiva and read his book. And he, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom there that will let you know when you need to go for help. His main predictors, though, for an ominous problem is when there's an, a, a lot of, um, you know, major loss of anger a lot of stonewalling, a lot of critical, you know, criticism and a lot of anger. And um, that doesn't mean the marriage is over. His techniques have been found to be very effective in fixing it. But, um, you know, um, his book is really a good way of doing it. Okay. Um, um, oh, so uh, Mendel, which is, um, you know, um, an excellent question. How important is it that I take care of my personal issues before I engage in my marriage, right? Um, and boy, is that a tough question. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I just saw somebody today who's answer, asking me that question because he has issues and he's very, has tremendous amount of insight into his issues. Um, but he wants to know how, how, how important is it that I, um, you know, that I, um, that, I, that I take care of it ahead of time. I used to have a professor who would say there are two kinds of people. He said there are normal people and there are people I know. Everybody has issues. Um, the problem is, um, you know, are your issues coming 
from, let's say, a family history of abuse and, um, you know, homes where there was a lot of invalidation and a lot of yelling and screaming and criticism and, uh, you know, possibly emotional abuse. If you come from that kind of a background, it's probably wise to, um, you know, to try to look into taking care of those issues, maybe going for premarital counseling. There's some wonderful premarital counselors out there, um, you know, who could uh, meet with you to let you know, you know, whether or not you have a clean bill of health to go ahead or do you need to do some work on it. Um, there's some very effective um, uh, programs for Hassan and Kala um, uh, preparation that teach you communication and teach you um, anger management and teach you, um, you know, some of the things that we spend tonight talking about. So uh, excellent, excellent question. Um, okay. Um, anonymous attendee who's actually, um, is there anything that you've seen? Oh, no wonder anonymous. Is there anything I've seen unique in Chabad marriages? Incredible question. Um, and if I could answer that in, in um, the best way I could think of, it's that um, let's say you're shliach um, someplace, or let's say that you're living an active Chabad life and it's a life of uh, chesed and staka, a life of meaning. So there you have uniqueness of being in a business that has all the ingredients of success in, 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 in a marriage. And I've seen unbelievably happy marriages in the Chabad community. Among the unique issues is there used to be a problem with too much drinking. You know, those, uh, I don't know if that's been dealt with, and that could be a problem. Um, we've done a little bit of research on marriages that show um, a higher rate of drinking in members of Chabad. Um, it, again, it could be the Chabad's already going to grape juice, in which case that wouldn't be a problem. Um, but I know that, um, you know, having schnapps has all kinds of um, implications from, you know, from other standpoints, but um, that is something unique. Um, but, um, and then the other uniqueness is um, if it's a family business where there's no room for vacation and taking a break, um, that could be problematic. Everybody needs a break. There's something called the default network of the brain. If I tell everybody now, just look outside and daydream a little bit. Look at, you know, the, the, the sky. Look at, um, you know, some of the beautiful, um, you know, beautiful, um, you know, scenery outside, whatever it is. And you just daydream a little bit. What the research shows us is there's a part of the brain people didn't even know existed. It's called the default network of the brain. It's what lights up when you daydream a little bit. And that's when you have your, your best thoughts your biggest Torah Hidushim, it's when you connect spiritually in, in the deepest kind of way, and it's when your most novel ideas come. So um, you need to build in a break, okay? You know, some of the problems, again, I'm talking now about for those of you who are um, shluchim, um, there needs to be a way to have a vacation. There needs to be a way to get away, even if it's for a day. Even if it's even if it's for um, a long weekend, I think that's a necessity. I think that's an absolute necessity. Um, so, um, I, does that answer it? Kind of. Hello. Okay. Let's keep going. Next one. Is there anything that you have? Okay, we just did that. Um, 
I'm getting married soon. I have several other friends getting married. What do I tell a friend who thinks your life will be a perfect dream once she's married? I feel bad for the disappointment she'll have to deal with after her wedding. Marriage is beautiful. I know that. But I also know it's not always easy. So what what do I tell a friend like that? Um, So there... Everything that we talked about tonight is what, um, you know, you know, you, you, you don't want somebody going to a marriage with totally unrealistic expectations. You don't want to throw a damper on it. You want to let her know, you know, look, marriage is wonderful. And um, I can't even imagine having a life without marriage. And the research shows people who are married are happier. They live longer. They have more meaningful lives. Their kids are better adjusted and all those kind of things. But with that being said, um, it takes work. And if, if I could recommend anything to her, I would recommend either Gottman's book or I would talk to her and say, look, you know, it's a myth to think that a marriage comes without struggle. Again, this all of tonight was about. We talked about the masa um, masa dichotomy. We talked about, you know, transforming the burden into a song. But that takes work to help somebody. It's an incredible chesed to help somebody understand that there really is a um, a myth to think that marriage doesn't require work and to manage expectations. It's literally, um, you know, could be a marriage saving kind of thing. Um, managing expectations doesn't mean that you tell tell her it's all negative or tell him it's all negative. You tell them, here's what to expect. And, um, you know, they'll find out on their own anyway. About the topic of changing um, during life to what we need to work on ourselves, right? Um, Each one and what he needs. The question is how you can comment um, to the spouse without hurting them about that. Do we even have to mention it or not think about it? I want to share an idea. We were told that the way we have to look at a a spouse's struggle like if it's our own struggle, which means that we see our own struggles, even that what we don't love, or even that we don't love ourselves less. How you think this could be in, 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 implemented in the best way for both? Okay, so um, yeah, so on this, um, yeah, another excellent, uh, excellent uh, question. Um, so let, let, me, let me make sure I fully understand it. Um, so, um, yeah, I certainly would not tell a spouse, you have to work on this because otherwise you're not fulfilling your mission in life. You know, people only change if they feel loved and accepted as they are. So I would not say it. You could work on yourself. You always have control over working on yourself. Um, you know, so, um, you know, um, and I like very much the idea of looking at a spouse's struggle like it's our own struggle. That's, that's very very nice and very true and a real Hasidic kind of perspective on this, which means that when we see our own struggles, okay, um, you know, uh, we, we don't love ourselves less. And that's also so true. Um, you know, Adam Carvey's Salasma, we tend to be much kinder to ourselves than necessarily to our spouse. But that's, I think that's a great goal to have, to try to do it that way. Um, so, okay. Um, um, how do I restart a marriage that has gone sour? I want to restart. What does it take? <clears throat> it's definitely doable. It's definitely doable. Here, though, I would strongly recommend 
getting a recommendation of um, a, um, you know, real, um, you know, of, of, of a marital therapist, at least to get started. I know that there has been um, some many made some money made available by um, Brunya Schaefer um, through some donors she had to help pay for um, therapy for various, um, you know, various, um, you know, shluchim in the community or members of the community. Um, I hope she's not going to kill me for having said that, but I think she wanted it to be publicized. So, um, you know, um, that, that might be a helpful uh, source. And I'm sure that um, the Bloomings can help, um, you know, Rabbi Robson Blooming could help with, um, you know, with referrals. Um, but there's always hope. There's really always hope. I've seen many marriages that have gone sour. If you're willing to work on yourself and not be defensive and willing to really do the hard work that it takes, um, I've seen many marriages, um, you know, restarted uh, successfully. Um, Okay. Um, What do I do? My wife wants to cut out my parents. I see where she's coming from, meaning they're a bit um, unhealthy. But they're my family at the end of the day. Another very, um, very important and, uh, and common question. Um, you know, um, I'll just say it's a rule of thumb. Um, it's never healthy, as understandable as it is, to completely cut out a grandparent. Children need grandparents. They often do better if they have a grandparent. Um, and you might have a parent who's abusive, Usually what you want to do is, is you want to manage, you could very much limit your connection with them, but you want to manage it. For example, um, you know, now that uh, days are uh, getting longer once the clocks, clocks change. So the days are getting longer, which means that if you go to them for, for Shabbos, let's say, if you're living in different neighborhoods, make sure to get there as close to Luchbenching as you can without it being problematic. Um, you have an escape mechanism ready at all times. Um, most importantly, though, is um, you don't badmouth your spouse to the other um, because they're going to feel caught in a loyalty conflict. Puts a spouse in a very difficult kind of situation. Their loyalty is going to have to be to you first, and that's the most important. You know, a husband's loyalty has to be to his wife, a wife to a husband ahead of to the parents, but there are ways of doing it in a way that could be um, helpful. I believe that um, uh, in, in um, one of the PowerPoints I'm sharing, there's some uh, very specific kinds of recommendations about how to deal with in-laws. Um, I wrote a chapter in a book um, on this, um, you know, with very practical recommendations um, from some work done by Dr. Rona Novik. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, that's um, you know, there are some very practical recommendations that could be made on this. Um, next, what do you do if you come home from a full day of work, you're tired, you need to relax, your spouse wants to spend time with you or take care of the children, or for you to take care of the children, you really want to spend time with her, but you simply have no strength. But yeah, um, what, what I would recommend is you have a planned discussion. Planned discussion is... You never talk about that in the heat of the moment, but you sit down at a quiet time when the kids are asleep or when, 
you could go out for a walk or you could, um, you know, go, go out for a cup of coffee and you just say, look, you know, we have, we have a problem here. Let's try to problem solve on, um, on what we could do. Um, there's something called the speaker listener technique where um, you take turns. First, one person speaks for as long as it takes for him to feel heard. And then everything he says is paraphrased by his wife until they feel, until you feel completely understood. And then vice versa, you know, she speaks as long as it feels for, for with the opposite gender. Um, if you Google speaker listener technique, you'll get some very specific ways of doing it. And when you just talk it out, you probably are going to be able to come up with some very specific kind of ideas on, um, on how to do this on, um, you know, on, um, you know, how, how to divide, divide things in a way. Um, and again, there are many, there are many ways of doing it that, you know, if you can't get a babysitter or you can't get extended family to come by, um, you know, there's, um, the key is to talk about it, um, to talk about it in a way that, um, is not coming from anger and accusation, uh, but coming from trying to problem solve and you'll find that your strength, you may have to shift if you're, if, if, if you are tired, if you're a morning person, you may have to get ready, get up a little bit early to have some connection that way. You know, something that's sometimes difficult. If your wife's a night person and you're a day person, you're a morning person, you might have to make some compromises and um, adjustments uh, that way. Um, one of my spouses doesn't want to go to couples counseling, and I know we can benefit so much from it. Um, yeah, that's uh, another very common question. Sometimes you could just ask her to go for um, one trial session and then decide, or three trial sessions and then decide. Another thing you might want to do is, is you might want to ask her to um, go to um, um, uh, a, um, um, you know, a, a friend who you know is, has a lot of influence on him or her. In this case, it may be either. Um, and, and just find somebody who they're more likely to be receptive to. You're not going to get somebody to want to change if they're not ready to change. There's, um, you know, the theories of change, um, you know, uh, by a guy named Prochaska, the maps onto the Rambam, Shuva, where if you're pre-Hakara Sechet, pre-contemplation, all the pushing in the world is going to do very little. But, you know, gentle talking may gradually get them to the point that they may be willing to at least give it a try. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've seen um, many, many times in, in therapy um, who started coming very anti and we're schlepped here. And, um, you know, I, um, you know, just by, you know, I'll usually tell them, look, it's going to be your decision, but you can't make an informed decision until you see me three times, four times, six times. And sometimes that's a way to roll people in. Um, again, I'm, I'm giving, I'm taking very complex questions. I'm giving them unfairly um, uh, short answers. Um, again, similar question, very resistant um, a spouse who uh, is uh, not inspired to get help. Um, something that might be helpful is um, it's a little bit off, off 
this direct topic of marriage, but it's about, in general, if you have a problematic family um, member, how do you inspire them to get help? So there's um, um, a book written by a man named Dr. Xavier Amador, A-M-A-D-O-R. Xavier is X-A-V-I-E-R. He's a professor at Columbia University. And he wrote a wonderful book on um, how to get people to, um, how to deal with people who are refusing to get help, how to not get engaged in power struggles with them. And that's very specific recommendations. And it may make sense to at least Google it and um, look at some of his work um, online, maybe even if you like it, to buy his book, um, because um, that's uh, um, often a very helpful kind of approach to um, inspire resistant uh, people. Um, Money is such a stressor. Any advice? Yes. Um, um, Yeah. Um, We've had, um, I I once spoke at Yom Eon, um, a full, it was actually a full half-day program uh, for couples on um, how to deal with money as a stress. Very long topic, but basically the idea is money is often a stand-in for power, control, security, um, and many other kinds of things. You ask yourself the questions, what did money stand for when I was younger? What did it stand for? Um, what was it a stand-in for? Was it a stand-in somehow um, for, um, you know, I grew up in poverty and now I, I feel a need to spend it because otherwise I feel less than. Was it used as an instrument of trying to manipulate me? And you ask yourself those questions and then you could work on separating wants from needs. Um, and um, there's a, um, um, th- there's, there's all kinds of stuff on it. Um, but I would, I would think that if you Google um, money and marriage with the name Smith in it, S-M-I-T-H, and um, five towns, um, you may find, um, you know, some recordings on it. Or you could go to my website. My website might have some stuff on money and marriage or just a, certainly on money and the meaning of money, children of money. My website is very easy to get onto. You just put in, I think, davidpelkovitz.com. It's one of those Google sites. And I think when you go onto that, you know, it's, there's no passwords or anything. You can just fool around on that site and find, um, you know, various lectures on these topics. I believe I heard from Moshe Lamb about a marriage ratio um, of 20 by one. No, um, no, absolutely not. Um, I would, um, look, I love, I love Moshe Lamb, um, but I would, uh, it would be nice to have a 20 to one. Uh, but if you want to look at the actual, um, you know, research on the ratio, I believe that, um, you know, the, the, the most respected journals, again, are the ratios uh, published by Dr. Gottman based on his um, 400 peer-reviewed studies. Um, and again, it may be the emotional end is talking about um, something else, and God forbid that I should in any way question it, but, um, and boy, would it be nice if you could have a 20 to 1 ratio, but um, I don't know. Um, oh, how do you prevent having the same mistakes as your parents? And that's hard. That's very, very hard. Um, you know, because um, we often repeat, repeat uh, without even knowing it, we repeat what we grew up with. And the key there is an awareness 
it's um, it's uh, to uh, make yourselves um, into um, make yourselves into um, um, a partnership to try to point out to the other uh, when you see that happening. Um, if you go on my website, I think there's a talk called "What Happens When Your Child Is Not You." You know, in the other direction. But um, it's a challenge in life. You know, as we we automatically, when we have our own children, we find ourselves echoing what we had. Uh, but it's doable. It's it's definitely doable. Um, you know. Um, so. Um, Again, that's a topic in itself. I'd suggest for a different podcast. Okay. Um, okay. Um, very good. Um, on the next question, you could certainly um, ask um, ask our hosts. Um, although I am, I feel terrible, but I am incredibly difficult to get a hold of, as I'll tell you. Um, um, okay. Yeah, is there something wrong with your spouse constantly consults with his or her parents before with the spouse? And on that, I would answer yes. Um, that's not the way it should be. It's really not the way it should be. It ha- if, it, if it happens, it's problematic. And again, I would really uh, recommend reading um, the in-law PowerPoint um, in, in, uh, that I hope is uh, you know, on my website or maybe even as part of the slides. Okay, David says, I was raised with such a stigma about therapy. We should be able to handle it on our own. So I'm so hesitant. And if I could just tell you, just in general, the stigma about therapy has been gradually lessening over the last um, generation. There are some fascinating studies that show it. Um, I'm finding more and more that um, people in, um, in, in the Hasidic community, people in a whole range of communities, no longer saying therapy is a stigma. But there still may be that kind of lingering kind of thing. But I can't tell you how often I'll see people in shul, okay, um, who I'm seeing in therapy, or people who are friendly with my children will say, hey, I just saw your dad. I was in their house today. I saw your dad when I was um, in his office today. it, the, the stigma is very much going away. If you were raised with the stigma, there is a wonderful article on stigma and overcoming stigma written by Dr. Hindi Klein at OHEL. So if you go on to um, um, ohelfamily.org and ask for some of the materials of Dr. Klein, Dr. Hindi Klein on stigma, she writes very nicely about these kind of stigmas in, in, in our community. Um, yeah. And I understand that, you know, um, the Gaiman book is called the seven ingredients of a successful marriage. Definitely buy it. Um, definitely worth buying. Um, okay. Again, seven ingredients of a successful marriage. How do you know how often to tell your spouse to change the way he's saying something because he's triggering versus accepting it. Um, and staying quiet. Um, nagging is not going to is not going to lead to anything other than a spouse deafness. So it's not a matter of how often you say it. It's a matter of trying to strike when the iron is cold, finding a time that he or she might be a little more receptive to it. And um, you know, um, you know, it's 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 difficult. It's um, 
you know, I feel, I feel for the challenge. It's a tough, tough challenge. Um, you know, but, um, you know, um, there again are some materials that you'll find, um, also on, um, and I'm not saying this, um, necessarily as, um, as, uh, anything other than the fact that they have some great materials and that's, um, sister to sister. It's a wonderful organization for um, single women or women in high conflict marriages um, has some wonderful um, materials, I believe, on their website. Um, so does from divorce. And I'm not in any way say just that they, they, they have amazing speakers and often post incredible materials from. Um, but maybe the best place that I don't have to take you to those, um, you know, uh, what might be unfortunate kind of um, triggering sites, maybe the best place is um, I would go on to the Amudim site. So Amudim, A-M-U-D-I-M, I think it's uh, .org. Um, they have wonderful um, materials and videos on their site that give you very practical ways of addressing exactly what you're talking about. You know, how do you stop yourself from being triggered? Um, and, um, you know, and um, they, they um, you know, it's, it's really worth the time. They have very talented people making the videos and very talented people um, uh, giving, giving those lectures. So I would go for that. Um, I didn't get the Vart of Masa and Masa. So it's um, Perik Dalid Yavamos, the Yochan and Boaz Mishnayis. The Teferis Yisrael, I believe, on the word Nesuin. But let's say I'm not right. Let's say I'm making that up and I don't have the right reference. I think I might. But it goes like that. He says, the Hebrew word Nesuin has embedded in it a very deep message about marriages. The inevitable difference between men and women in a marriage can either be a masa, could be a burden that weighs us down, and can even destroy a marriage. But another meaning of the word masa is a song, a transcendent, a, a, a song, something that that um, that lifts you up. The exact opposite meaning, okay? Um, you know, and um, you know, it's um, I think just a beautiful thought uh, when you uh, when you keep that in mind. Um, thank you for your time, and sorry for the typos. Okay, I didn't notice any typos, but um, I won't count them. It won't go on your permanent record. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the answer about telling your wife about something not good. How you could tell her if you actually have to begin to begin with. Not sure I understand that one. I'm sorry, I didn't see the answer about telling your wife about something not good. Oh yeah, how do you crit? I mean, how do you criticize? How do you criticize? So I obviously didn't do a good job of explaining that. I hear that. Of how, how, how do you criticize um, a wife when when um, she's never a macabre of criticism? And how do you do it? So again, what, what I'm suggesting is people rarely respond to feeling criticized. What they're much more likely to respond to is a calm discussion in, um, in, in, in a place that you are um, just... Um, you know, very, um, very um, 
kind of, kind of, um, you know, in, in, a, in a relaxed place and plan saying, Hey, look, you know, maybe we could talk about, there's some stuff I want to talk about to see if we could uh, maybe work on some aspect of our marriage. She might hear that, or you could, um, you know, use, um, use a book like Gottman's book and use that as a springboard. There are, um, you know, a number of great resources out there. There's a wonderful resource written by, um, um, Rabbi Doctor, um, I, um, uh, you know what? Go on that Moodle website. That should be helpful. But um, also, my website might have some ideas for you. Okay. Um, um, how to work on shame from bipolar mother, shame that doesn't let me accept the love from spouse. In short, feeling I don't deserve. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, here, I, I, I hate to sound redundant. It, it sounds painful and it sounds very difficult. But at the very least, I would um, consider going to a group, going to, you know, possibly there might be groups out there, um, you know, um, for children of uh, bipolar parents. There are some wonderful organizations for um, family members of people with uh, mental illness like bipolar. And um, I think that, um, you know, um, NAMI, N-A-M-I, is one such organization in the firm community. Um, I'm sure that if you call relief, you know, relief.help.org, R-E-L-I-E-F-H-E-L-P.org, you should be able to get some reference, some uh, referrals for uh, bipolar parents um, that, um, you know, um, on uh, maybe some groups that are out there, resources that are out there. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be getting married soon and my parents have a rocky marriage. How do I know my perspective on marriage is damaged because I've been looking at a very rocky marriage all my life or how do I get, give myself the proper perspective? So I thought the simple thing is what I always um, think about is just the fact that you could ask that question. You have a self-awareness is a very good sign. Um, it might be helpful to, um, to go to a premarital therapist, even for, for one session, something as simple and basic as that. And maybe, or maybe, you know, two, three sessions. Um, that could be um, very helpful uh, to do that. because. Um, you know, um, just awareness of that may be enough to get you going on the right path and, and to be able to have the healing power of being with other people who've had similar kinds of backgrounds can really uh, make, a, make a huge difference. Um, Parnassa issues, both are making just enough to cover bills. Yeah, so that's, again, um, to refer you back to that, um, that some of the money lectures on my website. Uh, but the bottom line is, um, you're right, you know, the Gemara tells us that, um, you know, people get on each other's nerves much more when there are financial problems. Um, and, um, you know, um, so, um, you know, the, um, it, it's a complicated question, I would suggest, um, again, you know, reading up a little bit on it in terms of, um, you know, um, 
Um, but I'll just tell you one thing, if, if I could um, suggest uh, one, one thought that comes to my mind. There was um, a classic study done a number of years ago when people who um, uh, people had terrible financial problems after the farming crisis in Iowa a number of decades ago. And you had a number of people who went from living on these large farms and mansions to losing everything and now living in a one-room house with terrible financial uh, difficulties. And they followed these people over a course of 20 years. What they found was what predicted um, what predicted the mental health outcome in these families wasn't necessarily the lack of money. It was about the ability of the couple to work together, the ability of the, t- the couple to um, um, connect to religious communities, which by definition you all are connected to such communities, and, and the, 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 the power of a couple um, being able to um, um, understand that everybody's going to have different coping mechanisms in dealing with the financial problems and to come up with the coping mechanisms that the, the one that works best for you. Because husbands and wives often deal with stress in different ways. Again, what I said before, couples don't have to think alike, they have to think together. So that's uh, that's uh, on, on that on that piece. Um, I grew up in a Chabad home and don't know a lot about the biology of intimacy, basic sex ed, not the halachos. Where can I learn more about intimacy from a Jewish source? So there are um, a number of um, wonderful um, books on that. Um, I'm a little worried about recommending a book since I'm not a Hasidish guy. Um, can I ask Rabbi um, Rabbi Blooming? Can you recommend a book uh, on this? Um, or um, there's um, the book that I know Rabbi Doctor Tversky Zatzal uh, always liked um, that he always recommended um, on intimacy, um, written by a woman named Sarah Diamond D I D I A M E N T from woman, and he. He loved that book, and it goes um, it goes into detail though. But it's more in terms of how to talk to your children about intimacy. Here you're talking about um, about doing this um, from a Jewish source. So I would um, again, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it over to the Bloomings. Um, you know that you should um, you should contact them about that. It's an excellent question and. Um, Again, I'm a little nervous. I, I, I'm a little nervous about giving a recommendation um, without uh, being sure that it's consistent with um, with your ashkafa. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the next person is saying, just wanted to confirm the name of the Amador book is "I Am Not Sick, I Don't Need Help." I think that sounds right. Um, I was taught that a man is the captain of the ship, the mashpia. It is that healthy for a marriage, isn't it a partnership? So again, I'm, um, you know, I'm talking to you from out of town. I could talk to you about my own beliefs. Um, you know, my own beliefs are that uh, marriages do best with, um, you know, both men and women having having a voice and seeing it as a partnership. Um, and that's certainly what I saw in the marriage of some of the Gdolim who I knew well. Moshe Feinstein was Mishpacha of my family. 
certainly saw that big time in his marriage. My Rebbe was Rav Palm um, in Taradas. I saw it very much so in his, you know, sort of in his relationships. Um, you know, I could give examples from my, um, you know, you know, Litvish uh, background, but um, the, um, yeah, um, but at least the modeling for me was much more of a balance. But um, again, um, I, I hear, I hear that there may be different approaches here and there again, I'll send you to um, your experts. Yeah, that's the right reference on the Sunnah the Ferris Yisrael, Yavamas Perak Olive, Mishnah Dalid, that's right. Um, um, yeah, and then here's the question from Panina, how do we ensure that we're enjoying each other's company, not just co-parenting? And I think that's, um, you know, um, you know, um, you, ha- you have to carve out some child-free components of your relationship. And again, even if it's just going out for one night, even if it's just, um, you know, uh, figuring out a way to get um, extended family to watch your kids, it doesn't have to be all the time. But every once in a while, um, what it does in terms of recharging the batteries I think makes an enormous difference. Um, yeah. So somebody answered from what was talked about before, the Macabre must be a dynamic, it's very much a partnership. And that finishes it, everybody. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. This is an incredible bunch. And I see the power of the podcast by the, um, you know, by the depth and um, honesty of the questions. So thank you, everybody. And may you all be zocha, may we all be zocha to a happy Purim and to, um, you know, an Adar filled with uh, uh, Simcha Shel Mitzvah and connection and all that. Rabbi Blooming, thank you. Rabbi Simcha thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. The Yeshiva.net.